And when you reconcile the truth and parties get to share their stories and people get to be held accountable, accountability is so important when we're talking about stories because once Julie shares her story and then I share my story, if we're not meeting in the middle, whatever the case might be, at least we can say we've heard each other because then I can I can hold myself accountable for how I've showed up in your story and vice versa and we can actually have a conversation. I'm Julie Masters and you are listening to Inside Influence. Today I'm back with some more minis, as in mini episodes. This week's minis are both on the topic of the tough stuff. To break that down, how we influence ourselves and the people we're here to support during those bits of life that sometimes just feel like stumbling alone in the dark in the wilderness. The parts where often the old rules are outdated now and we're just writing the book as we go. And in some cases, like today's topic, how we do it in this period of time will go on to set the tone and the trajectory for whatever and whoever comes next. Now, previous minis have all been with past guests of Inside Influence, but this one's a little bit different. Today's conversation is about co-parenting, the good, the bad, the ugly and the achingly beautiful attempt to raise human beings together. There's no assumption here about which way you do this either in or outside of a traditional romantic partnership, in or outside the same home. It's also not about 50-50 parenting or who works and who stays at home. For me, the more important question is how we do it, how we do it together in a way that keeps everybody, and I'll repeat here, everybody nourished and supported. Now, I recorded this episode, which you'll probably be able to tell, deep into the trenches of the first lockdown. Both mine and Josh, my husband's offices, had closed. We were working from home. Both our businesses needed some serious reimagining in order to survive. And we were trying to do all of this while wrestling, and I will call it wrestling rather than parenting, two children under four in a home without any walls. Normal game plan out of the window. Now, needless to say, it was not pretty, but... What it did do is shine a really intense light on all of the areas of our co-parenting approach that maybe hadn't been working for a while. And in one of my moments looking for answers and also using my iPhone to numb out the noise, I stumbled across an incredible TED talk by a man called Joel Leon. And in it, he talked about co-parenting as beautiful and hard work, work that should be consciously created rather than just left to form as a result of whatever parenting role models we witnessed as children. And he had me totally hooked. After I finished watching, I turned around to Josh and I said, I really want to interview this guy for the podcast. And he, he looked at me and understandably, he said, I'm not actually sure what parenting has to do with influence. So... For anyone else out there wondering about that link, here it is. There is no distinction between parenting and leadership, i.e. influence. Anything that works in your home, I guarantee you the essence, and don't mistake the essence with the tactics, will work with the people you work with or lead and vice versa. There is also no distinction between co-parenting and negotiation. Our ability to balance two competing needs and reach a mutually beneficial, respectful outcome, even when the going gets hard. Those tools, they don't change between the boardroom and the lounge room. And finally, 
for many of us, myself included, isn't this just the biggest influence job we will ever do? The one we will regret the most if we get it wrong, the one we are most fundamentally, universally and societally responsible for. Now, I know for myself how I influence and lead myself around the ones that I love. It is often an exact and sometimes, like this time, uncomfortable mirror on how I am in the world at large. Either curious, collaborative and clear, or distracted, fearful and just forcing my own agenda. So, in true stalker style, I'm very good at stalking, I did track Joel down, and in this conversation, we go deep into the worlds of radical honesty. What does it even mean? Where should it be used? And how should it be best be used? Now, clue for anyone that's ever given this a try, it should not be used everywhere. The beautiful and the hard work of co-parenting, including mutual respect and monitoring how we show up for another person. How to get through that killer phrase, I didn't sign up for this. Anyone heard or said that recently or before? And how to accept the fact that this job was not meant to be a fairy tale. How to handle and communicate our own capacity and do the same for our co-parent. And the struggle for relatable, relevant knowledge for co-parents. Why it doesn't exist and how we can step up and start to lead the charge. We are living in a world where the old rules of parenting no longer apply for both genders. We desperately need a new game plan and one that honours and respects the new shapes of our families. And they do now come in a myriad of beautiful new shapes. If we're able to do this and do it well, we can in turn equip our children with better tools to build their own families in whatever form that takes. So on that note, sit back, maybe invite in your co-parent, and enjoy my conversation with the amazing Joelle Leon. Welcome to the podcast, Joelle Leon. Thank you. Thank you, Julian. I'm happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you here. I said to you before, while we were off air that when I came across your, your TED talk, we, my husband and I were, were deep in the trenches of, of co-parenting in a, in a very different way than we had ever co-parented before, i.e. everybody in the house at the same time, juggling, schooling, work, yeah. everything else on top of itself. And so I saw your TED talk and I was like, that is a conversation that's so needed, not only just right now, right in the middle of this situation, but generally. I feel mm-hmm. like it's one of the most underhad conversations, the conversation of co-parenting. I feel like it's probably going to be one of the largest conversations of our generation, which is how do we do this equitably so that everybody can thrive, so that we are able to model for our children um, what cooperation looks like, what communication looks like, what compassion looks like, what curiosity looks like. And what does it look like when everybody has the chance to thrive. What does that look like? What does a world like that look like? And so, yeah, I feel like it's underhead. I feel like I would love to see it had more. And that probably just starts with me reaching out to you and, and having this one. So I'm going to kick off the, the way that I always kick off, which is the question, what's the most influential idea that you've heard recently? And it can be around parenting. It could just be something totally different. I mean, it's actually not around parenting. It's something I meant to tweet, tweet this out. Uh, a very good friend of mine, Flacco, we were having a conversation about artists and about the community. And basically he was like, yo, 
if you're hungry, you don't care about art. I thought that was so important. I'm going to give you two, actually. So that 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 was important for me because, especially now at this time, I, I am a father, but I'm also a storyteller. And so a lot of my work is centered around not just telling stories from the from from as an existing father, but as a black father, as a black man who essentially feels like he part of his purpose is to tell stories for the community. I get to do the things that I get to do because under this capitalistic structure, I've been able to kind of create a, a way for myself and my family. This allows me to provide, which also allows me to feed and fund into my art. If you're poor, if you're broke, your ability to maybe imagine or reimagine your world and your conditions and using art in order to do that sometimes can be limited. So like if you're hungry, like we can't address... We can't address you being like an artist or being the, the most capable artist if we're not addressing the other societal issues that might be compounding why you don't get to do that. So I thought that was just really interesting, but very matter of fact, we probably talked about that. And something else that I, I radical honesty is a phrase that I heard used by um, a, a friend of mine, Crystal Torres, a singer songwriter. She said it in my ears, just perked up because it was like, yeah, it's not just about love and honesty and empathy, but radical versions of these things. Like, how do we take these no this notion of being honest and being open and being vulnerable to the next level, right? So that we're really talking through and talking to um, uh, not just ourselves, but, 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 but to our partners, um, to our co-parents, to our children. Like, you know, and it's something I try to lean into, I think, whether I knew of it or not, but even with like Lila, my oldest, as far as and I'm sure probably you can relate, not no filter because I think it's not that. And I think people confuse having no filter with the idea of radical honesty and love. But how can I be forthcoming in a way that enables both parties who are involved in the dialogue to be open with each other and the loving and, and, and in the word that you use compassionate. I think it's, it's really interesting you bring that up because I was actually just thinking about radical honesty yesterday yeah. and that term. And, and when I first heard it, it was a few years ago now, mm-hmm. it sat really uncomfortably with me. I thought, well, you know, there are, there are times and places and ways in which to deliver honesty. There are, there are containers that can hold honesty safely for everybody involved. And I think that over the years I've come to reconcile radical honesty with, okay, first let's look at the container. Mm-hmm. Look at the container of, of a family or of a conversation or a situation or a time or a place. Mm-hmm. Look at that container and then look at everybody's health within that container. And yeah. then it can hold, you know, the truest, most honest versions of yourself of the conversation that you can possibly bring. I, I love that. And I think kind speech and Buddhism, and I forget the five pillars of it, but part of that is like, is it kind in the timing? And far too often, which is why I don't like words like brutal honesty, because I think that in and of itself, it's saying that, or the, or the cold, hard truth. And it's like, the truth doesn't have to be that, you know, like, I think radical honesty for me is actually all encompassing of exactly what you're talking about, because it's also, because something can be loving, but the timing can be off. And if the timing is off, then it doesn't matter how loving you are, how intentional you are, the message is not going to be received appropriately by the parties that are participating. Radical honesty allows you to be able to see with a bird's eye view, all these elements that you're talking about so that when we are being honest, it's actually nailing all these attributing factors that allow for honesty, radical honesty, really to thrive in those environments. I love that that notion of it. And I think that the, the, probably one of the most important parts of that that I've learned just in being in relationship with somebody for a long time, because I, when I first came at it, you're like, well, here's my honesty, you know, here's mine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we don't yeah. do here's my honesty. I think that's what I'm trying to say. We do here's the honest truth. There is no such thing as the 
honest truth. There is, yeah. here is my honesty. Here is an honest version of my experience of this. Mm-hmm. And now mm-hmm. I, I would love to hear yours. Everything is subjective. Yes. I also think it's creating empathy, right? Because if I'm able to say there is no truth per se, there is like your ver- your truth and my truth. And then we can like amicably agree that maybe there is some truth that, that can we can meet in the middle on, but we're more about creating space for the stories and like the narratives that we have, as opposed to saying there is a right way or a wrong way to view whatever we're discussing at this moment. I interviewed a trauma counselor years ago on the podcast and something mm-hmm. she said always stuck with me. She said, you know, there can be no resolution until the stories are heard. Yeah. I don't want to get super political. You saying that just, I, I think about America and I think about the climate of America now when, when you look at um, a George Floyd, the way his life is taken. America has an honesty problem until America can be honest about past and where, like what's financed the past, right? And like how America's played a role in other nations' story and their past and their present, you're gonna we're gonna continue to see these things because no one is dealing with the truth. And to be received, to have the have the stories be received, to be heard, to in, to be integrated. To say I'm gonna take that and I'm gonna I'm gonna discuss it. I'm gonna think of I'm gonna think about it. And here's I'm gonna come back to the table with what I'm gonna do. That's gonna make a dent in that somehow. When you reconcile the truth and parties get to share their stories and people get to be held accountable. Accountability is so important when we're talking about stories, because once Julie shares her story and then I share my story, if we're not meeting in the middle, whatever the case might be, at least we can say we've heard each other, because then I can I can hold myself accountable for how I've showed up in your story and vice versa. And we can actually have a conversation as opposed to what I think tends to happen a lot of times in not just partnering relationships, but just relationships in general, platonic, familial, whatever the case might be. People are just leading with their truth without letting other folks express their their truth as well. All right. Well, let's let's share some stories. Let's share some yeah. stories on co-parenting. You have called co-parenting beautiful and hard work. I want to talk about the beautiful first because <laughs> God knows we're going to get into the hard. So let's, yeah. let's start yeah. with the beautiful. The, the, the beautiful, I say this a lot, but like Lila's mother has been one of my greatest teachers by far. And I think our we went through some shit we had broken off any sort of like romantic dealings very early on we're talking like before lila was born like first trimester we kind of already knew this wasn't going to work i hadn't done a lot of the work that i needed to do as a man as a human being to be able to show up for her in a way that created space for her story you know i think i was very focused on a lot of the things that were being upended in my life first child like still figuring out what my career was, not making a lot of money, feeling very conflicted about who I was as a person, having some very troubling mental health issues like suicidal ideations, you name it. It was just rough goings. Like we both were getting to show up for parent, as parents for Lila, but there was a lot of our trauma that we were kind of projecting on each other and weren't really in a, in a healthy enough space, either of us, to really sift through that. To moving forward to where it is now, where it's like we, we all have conversations about we had to get to a place of like really rock bottom in our co-parenting relationship to actually and dissolving our friendship to be able to look at our friendship in an honest way. And so that's the beautiful part of it for me, the, the human experience and being able to see the growth of a person who I care about and love and, and being a part of that. And I think there's something so beautiful about being able to share and, and walk this world with people who you love and you care about. 
um, in a variety of different ways. So, you know, whether it's a family member or a close friend or a colleague or a co-parent, there's no there's no other person who understands um, my daughter like her mother does. And so that is a very unique relationship that nobody else can have. And so you have um, you have Lila, who who's four and you you now have West, so four yeah. four month old baby girl. I just want to talk about that rock bottom bit that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. We've discussed this briefly before that notion. I think when you start the parenting journey, this question kicks in, it either kicks in at the beginning or it kicks in somewhere along the journey somewhere, which is this question of I didn't sign up for this. You know what? I didn't, I didn't sign up for this at all. As in, I didn't think I was going to become a parent right now. I didn't sign up for this like this. You know, I didn't sign up for, I had this notion. I know you've talked about it before of, you know, we're going to hold hands through and argue in Ikea and it's going to be beautiful. And even the arguments are going to be Netflix worthy. Uh (laughs) Or, you know, situations change and you're like, well, no, I didn't sign up. I didn't sign up to do it like this. This whole notion of I didn't sign up for this. How did you broach that question? How did you broach that moment of I didn't sign up for this? There was just a very templated way. The Capricorn, we just plan things out like we are planners to a T. When it came to parenting, and I think partially because I'm also a black man and recognize the stereotype attached to black fathers. It was like, I'm going to be married. I'm going to have a home, not necessarily a house, but like a space that's mine with me and my partner or wife or whatever. And then we're going to have a child after I'm financially stable. You know, I feel really good about where I am financially. And when none of those things happened, like literally none of those things happened, it was a reality check for me because... I remember looking at it then and just being like, I'm a failure. I'm a fuck up. I, what, what am I actually doing? I'm just kind of, again, a part of what, what, what the stereotype is. And what was that stereotype in your head? The, the black dad who just goes around and gets a woman pregnant and then moves on to somebody else and then does the same thing again. You know, I think there's been a lot to, to combat that stereotype, but in, in, in no way, shape or form was anyone bringing that to me. But I do think to a certain extent, I felt like there was pressure to show up as that. And I was getting pressure, to be fair, to try to make it work. You know, when I knew very clearly that it wasn't going to. And I had people tell me that, you know, it'll change. Like once the baby comes and then you two will fall madly in love. And I was like, that is not going to happen. And not because I don't want it to happen, but just because who I am as a person, I'm very clear about what I want and do not want and what is and what I know, what my spirit is telling me is going to work. What it meant to not be the the kind of, I don't want to say fairy tale version of, of what a parenting relationship is going to look like, but the textbook rather version of what is an appropriate family dynamic. And you'd said that your your first experience of real love and what showing up as a healthy co-parent looks like was your mom. How did that type of showing up feel to you as a child? I can look back and look at how much I was loved. And I, I can say that because I was loving. And it's something I think we have to make very clear. And, and I try to make clear on my platforms when I'm afforded the opportunity. When we, we've been, we're very gung-ho about self-care and self-love and love yourself. And, you know, in order to be able to do that, though, you need someone or someones who are giving you an example of what that love can look like. And a healthy love. And a healthy love and what that, how do you define that? Because you don't know. You don't know what healthy is until someone puts it in front of you. My mom wasn't a textbook kind of like theater mom. You know, like I grew I, I was kind of reared in the theater and, and reared in hip hop in the community and in arts. 
But it wasn't because like my mom per se was like, we're going to go to dance class every Monday and I'm going to put you in this class. My mom didn't have time. My mom was a night nurse at a very busy hospital with three black boys that she was raising in the Bronx during, during the Reaganomics crack era, right? Like just for some context. But for her, it was like dream. Like my mom was very big on like, just dream, like reach for the moon and we should be amongst the stars. That was the thing my mom would always say to us. And that was her expression of love where my mom wasn't the, the what do you want to do, son? And then let's help you figure it out. My mom was like, here's the playing field for you very much. I think when we talk about parenting styles, right? Carpenter versus gardener. I think my mom was a super relaxed gardener <laughs> in that way, but that was beneficial for me. And maybe she knew that, like my mom won't say it, but maybe she knew that was the energy that me, Joelle, needed in order to become the man I am now. But like her love was a very like hands off, but intimate love, if I can describe it as such, where my mom wasn't all up in my business. My mom helped me do my homework. My mom did. My mom showed up. My mom was at every single play. And if she couldn't, she made sure my stepdad was there. My mom was very enthusiastic about my 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 artistic pursuits. And what I tell people a lot of the times is the best thing my mom did for me was get out of my way. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like my mom, like as a Caribbean parent, my mom could have been the one that's like, you have to be a doctor. You have to be a lawyer. You have to get a job at this age. You know, my mom was not that. My mom was just like, like it was a very faithful love. And I think that attributed to how she showed up as a co-parent in what was a very precarious situation for her. You know, growing up, you'd never heard the word co-parenting. You heard, you heard a lot of other words. But what you said was that your mum showed you what healthy co-parenting looks like, which was interesting to me because you said, you know, I'd, I'd never heard anyone say co-parenting, but your mother was showing you what co-parenting looked like while being by herself. Mm-hmm. How did she do that? Well, you know, my, my mom never talked bad about my father. My mother tried to find ways to include my father in the dialogue. Now, granted, you know, my father, because of his own mental health struggles and disorders, like my father is diagnosed with manic bipolar disorder. He's a paranoid schizophrenic, like alcohol um, dependence. Like we can run, we can go down to all this. And so he could not be present. I think even like my father was a Vietnam veteran. My father suffered his own kind of sexual childhood trauma and physical trauma in the household from what I had been told. So my mother has not many options, you know, again, for more context. Like before I was born, my father had burnt down our first house that my mom had in the Bronx, you know, because he thought it was an enemy bunker. This is what my mother is having to deal with while also working, while also providing, right? While also being a parent. And I think... And again, hindsight, because I'm not thinking about any of this when I'm growing up. I'm not seeing that. I'm not understanding it. I just know my mom is showing up. That's my only primary focus at that point. Trying to uphold the dynamic of what she had been told and what she had been raised to understand was needed for Black boys, especially boys in general, like they need their father. But she also made a decision at a certain point to say, like, this is not worth my my life, my livelihood, and, and also potential harm this could be bringing to my to- children emotionally and also potentially physically. Mother was trying to create space for my father to show up in any capacity, and he just couldn't do it, you know? Um, and I think that was important for me to be able to see as I grew older. And you've made the, the important point before that, that nobody was having those conversations then. You know, nobody was sat around a dinner table having you know, complex conversations about parenting, the role that fathers play in that conversation, the role that mothers play in how to balance multiple roles 
let's go there for a second because I feel like it's very easy to look at the past generation and go, no, but no one was having that conversation. But but I don't feel like I had it. I feel like my my husband and I, before we got married, um, we were together a long time before we got married. I think we had the the conversation went something like this, you know, when we have children, let's co-parent. Yep, that sounds good. And we felt <laughs> uh, we felt so woke. You know, our yeah. parents never our parents never had this conversation. We will have it. And I look yeah. back now at those two individuals wherever we were, probably sat in a bar somewhere. Um, and I think, you know what? Go deeper. Like, what is co-parenting? What mm-hmm. is the definition yeah. of co-parenting that you are suggesting that you feel like you are both comfortable with? And I think that that's a really important nuance there. And so how how do you define, let's start that. How do you define co-parenting? You know, when we look at cancel culture and, and like how it's kind of become super prevalent in like in, in our world and in the conversations we have, we don't talk enough about the context in, in, in which we've been afforded access to language, right? Like I didn't know what a co-parent was until I had a child because I wasn't that wasn't in my periphery. I wasn't I wasn't trying to read books on co-parenting like five years before I was having a child. Like I wasn't thinking about that. I wasn't in the headspace. So I can imagine a world in which you and your husband were like, yeah, we're going to co-parent. How how much of a grasp do and did you potentially even have for that at the time besides knowing, oh, this is like the word and there's like a certain kind of framework. And then sometimes, though, it's what I became frustrated with as as as, as time progressed and and, I, and I'm like my, my our daughter is growing. It was like I didn't there was shit in the books that was talking about what this felt like. It's like date night and like how to stay sexy for your partner. I'm like, I don't talk about this. I'm like, I'm trying not to jump over a cliff because I don't know how to do this right. No one is telling me how to show up for myself and how to show up for my co-parenting partner in a way that allows both of us the opportunity to grow and flourish, even if we're not together. Because even when I was looking at it, it was very much from the lens of if you're a divorced parent, if you're a separated parent, but it was not dealing with the very stark reality of individuals who have children and don't plan on having children and then have been brought with the idea of, oh, wait, we're having a baby. We said yes to a baby. What are we doing here now? There was no book for that. You know, there would have been a book with the title, hey, we're having a baby. We didn't know we were going to have a baby. So now how we co-parent. I would have read that shit. That would have been great for me, you know, but no one had written it. So I had to, the TED talk was me being like, all right, listen, equity. Like, how do we create equity, equity in households? How do we take, how are we empathetic towards our co-parenting partners' struggles and development and what they want to do? So that when Lila's mother's like, hey, I need to finish my BA. I did not get my BA and I want to set an example for my daughter. That means I, Joelle, have to then say, okay, well, that means I'm staying, you know, I'm staying late nights with Lila when there was, that was not, that was not part of our plan at all. And so I would leave work, pick Lila up from school, pick her up from daycare, be with her, bathe her or cook for her, put her to bed and then head to my home and get back home at like 10 o'clock and have to get to whatever Joelle creative work I had to do while her mother was also having to go to class, do homework worry about am I showing up as a mom effectively for our child, all this other shit. You know, for me, co-parenting goes back to the basic, to, to, to the basics of, of all relationships. And again, I love the word that you use, like compassion. For me, it's empathy, right? Like co-parenting is an empathetic relationship between two individuals who have chosen to sacrifice for the greater good of their child, you know, while also recognizing that those sacrifices can ebb and flow. And I get to live 
parts of my life that are going to feed me and fulfill me and you get to do the same. What I love about that is it's it's a how, not a what. We, as in me, can get very caught up in the in the what. Like, okay, so what do I do? What do you do? What do I do? And that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the yeah. how. We're talking about yeah. the how we show up, the what will change, the what will change dependent on you have a BA you need to complete. Okay. You're, you know, you're not in a good space right now. I don't know. You have a, a parent that is sick and, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. you need me to show up differently right now than you have ever needed me to show up before. And you use this, you know, you use this beautiful question, which was, how can I show up for you in ways that benefit our family? And that's not a one-time only question, right? Yeah. It should be like yeah. a once a week question. Yeah. Yeah. It once or even a day, you know, once a day, like, you know, I, I try to, and you know, I don't have the answers to all of this, but like my, my favorite words are intention and empathy and love, because I think if I can lead with those three things, it allows for an opening that lets me see the people that I care about in the ways that I need to see them that is going to serve themselves and myself best. The welcoming, that's the tough bit, the welcoming, that yeah. stuff is going to change. I am going to change. You are going to change. The situation is going to change. Sometimes in a moment-to-moment basis, sometimes on a Tuesday afternoon where you did yeah. not see it coming and so, and everything looks different after that moment. Yeah. You know, Stuff is going to change. And when Josh, who's my husband, when we got mm. married, his his background is, you know, his parents married married multiple times. My background, I come from a, a relatively stable stable home life, but you know, there were certainly points in there where as a child you're looking around going, Have you guys considered divorce? Because I just I, I just want to put it on the table. So let's, yeah. Can we put this on the table? Yeah. And so when we when we came to write our vows, when we decided to finally get married you know, one of the things that we, that we talked about is taking this until we death do us part thing. Let's just, just Mm -hmm. get rid of that. That just seems like an unrealistic promise. Mm -hmm. And let's replace it with, I, I promise to love and respect you for the rest of your life, which sounds really simple. We don't know what's going to happen. And that could be the hardest journey of my life or of your life, finding Mm -hmm. ways to love and respect each other for the rest of our life. I love that because, you know, it's also honest. it's radically honest. Man, you know, you, we, we so much want to control what is going to happen. And whether it be COVID, sickness, or like potential issues in a partnership, there's certain things you just cannot, we can't, we can't control. And a lot of that is ego. So when we talk about having to dramatically shift like, a, like an arrangement, you know, or even looking at it from a day-to-day basis, it's ego is very, ego likes comfort. Ego likes things being a certain way because ego gets to say, ego ego will tell you, no, it needs to go this way or it needs to be my way or this way. Love and, and, and moving in a space of, 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 of heart and spirit goes, everything is temporary. I used to look at my, I used to look at my mother and think, you know, I would never... I would never handle that like that. I would, I would never do that like that. And then when you're in the moment and you realize, yeah, I, you know, given rest, sleep, given all things being equal, I wouldn't. But on the back of two years of no sleep and everything else that's going on and juggling work and juggling pressures and juggling everything else that's on my plate right now and being pregnant and hormonal, you're damn right. This is how I'm going to respond right now. (laughs) This is exactly what this is going to look like. So there's, how do we handle our own capacity? 
How do we, how do we manage that? And then as a co-parent, when you're watching the person you are co-parenting with and you're thinking, oh, they're at the end of the edge of their capacity here in this moment, how do we step in and support ourselves and our fellow mm. co-parent? I think empathy is the key to everything. What you're talking about is not just capacity, but the context. That's also one of my favorite words, context. Because if you have context, you then get to, like you have context when you bring empathy into the space, um, which allows for, for capacity of like feeling and, and, and being able to make room for the very nuanced way the people we care about show up in the world. We have our own shit. We have our own projections, right? When we talk about, even when we look at, prime example, maybe your mom, there's also a whole history that you are not privy to. You know what I'm saying? Like, even when we take everything else that you've mentioned, there's a history of her and who she was before she became a mother. Like, before she even had to think about that, that shows up every single day for her, that she has to then deal with or compartmentalize then you have to look at the era in which she was parenting, right? And and what that looks like from a womanist slash feminist point of view. So then you have to take this into context as well, right? Like there are so many layers to the thing that we are generally as children not privy to at all. Or as humans, like we place so much judgment on other people, you know, about how they show up, who they are showing up as, why they're showing up this way, with no context at all as to what brought them to that place, Maybe it's the question why. What's what's the one piece of advice you would give for anybody who's struggling to co-parent out there right now, either in a way that they can thrive or a way that their their partner can thrive? Am I adding as much love as I can in this situation right now? You know, in this moment, um, I had I was on the thought leadership class, and Devin Brandison, um, the brother who was leading, he he did, and I don't know if it helped or not, but. He said what he did for himself was he changed the name of his um, of his ex-wife in his phone to like beautiful. Let's say her name is Diana, beautiful and wonderful Diana. What's her name in his phone? So that every time oh, she I called, love that it was beautiful and lovely Diana. So like you know for what it was for for me it was a wonderful human name. I think I just changed the name in my phone to her actual name now because it may it we're in such a great place that I don't have to I don't need that reminder. Am I putting as much love as I can in this situation right now? And consistently asking myself that. And what is my capacity for that? And what am I clinging to in this space right now that's not not allowing me to do that? Which all comes back to empathy. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your for your hard won insights on this topic. It's been a real pleasure. No, this was this was such a, a great conversation. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate you and I appreciate what you're doing here. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now. For those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, if you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com. Pop in your email address. It is free. We will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas tools and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work. It's called the Influencer Code. It's not long, but it is full of value. So 
download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business. Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.